Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. The history of the nurse anesthesia profession suggests that regardless of the challenge or crisis facing it, the right person at the right time with the right message was chosen by the membership to lead. This segment of our podcast is entitled The Courage to Lead. We are pleased to highlight some of these contemporary visionary leaders. We want to express gratitude to all and give encouragement to those that will accept the challenge in the future. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Well, good morning, Sharon. Good morning, Jeremy. Are you awake? I'm awake. Have you had your coffee yet? I have. Yeah. Well, I hadn't had any. I don't touch the stuff. It's bad for me. So um. <laughs> We won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sharon, what time is it? It is time to wake up, Jeremy. It is. And we have in the studio with us today another one of our favorite people, Nancy Brute-Marie. It is. And Nancy's going to talk about part of our Courage to Lead series back when she was president of the ANA today. Oh, I love the series. Yeah, so welcome, Nancy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so Nancy, why don't you just kind of summarize for us some of the things that happened during your presidency, and then we'll kind of touch and break each one of these out. Well, one of the things that happened was that we adopted the practice statement on office-based practice and also the office-based anesthesia guidelines. It was the first time that the ANA Foundation did the mentor program for CRNAs who were working on or thinking about working on their doctoral degree. So what they did was they paired them up with CRNAs who already had doctoral degrees to, you know, help the process. It was also the first new program director's orientation workshop. And we also had a representation at the dedication of the Women in Military Service for America Memorial and Arlington, Virginia, and of course AANA had been an original donor to that project. One of the big things that happened was that HICFA, which is now CMS, which is a part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, released proposed rule, or released a proposed rule to defer to states on physician supervision of CRNA Medicare cases. This began the Part A supervision issue, and of course that year became our top legislative priority. 
Also, there was a public relations campaign for OB anesthesia was rolled out. And at that time, there was a part of, if I remember correctly, the Council on Certification that we call the CTAC. And of course, that's not a part of any of that anymore. But that was the first time that our members could get a printed or faxed or email transcript. Up until that time, everything was done by snail mail. Oh, My, how times have changed. <laughs> I did not realize that the office-based guidelines started during your presidency, which of course has a huge impact on my practice yeah, because you, that's yeah. what I do is office based. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? And before we do that, you know, we forgot to mention what year you actually ah, were president. Good point. So that was what ninety six, ninety seven. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. So we just kind of set a time frame there exactly. too for some of these things. Very so. good point. Well, I think before and during my time on the board, office practice moved from like a novelty mm-hmm. to really being a practice setting and a setting that AANA, as well as ASA, were developing guidelines because, you know, as practices change, then we need to put out guidelines and, you know, practice statements because they're important, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. as far as protecting people in adverse situations because if you have guidelines and you have a position statement then you know what is felt to be a safe way to practice and then you can lean back on those in an adverse situation as I was doing what I was supposed to do of Mm -hmm. course it can be used against you as well so at that time uh, the practice committee worked on these and actually oddly enough there was a educator who happened to be chair of the practice committee that year. The practice committee was kind of shocked that I did that and wasn't sure it was the right thing. And then I was told it's probably one of the best things I ever did. But Denise Martin Sheridan chaired oh, the um, she's amazing yeah practice committee that year. And the reason was I just I'm not being critical, but a lot of the things that had come forward from the practice committee had to have a lot of editing done to them. Mm -hmm. And I knew Denny was really good at that, and we would would probably come to the board and we would be ready to release it. And that's what happened. Mm -hmm. So, um, But there were some really strong people on that practice committee, like Scott Gray. And um, so that's, that's one of the things that happened. I'm sure they've been revised and oh, yes. everything. updated every couple of years. Well, Nancy, one of your points was the mentoring program for doctorate-level students with CRNAs holding doctoral degrees. Now, obviously, that's a huge thing these days, but do you know what percentage of CRNAs or have a general idea of what it was back in 96, 97? For- it was more like 1% to 2% that had doctoral degrees, but if you will remember we had moved our programs into master's degree programs and in doing that they were in universities which they had not been before so program directors were finding that some programs or some departments in which they moved their programs wanted them to move from a master's degree to a doctoral degree And this was kind of a new thing for CRNAs. And we did have some people such as Marge Falk Callahan, Scott Mm -hmm. Foster, who already had PhDs. And so the foundation felt it would be a good idea to mentor 
CRNAs who were working on their doctoral degrees or moving toward working on their doctoral degrees because, again, like I say, it was something we had not had to do before. The were world. these all PhDs? Because the DMP Marge didn't come, come around until... Well, now, Rush, Rush did have their DMP and their ND. They had two at okay. the time. There, were, there was a nurse, I think it was an ND, and they had the DMP. But that was that was pretty novel. Yeah, that, as far as I know, and that wasn't mandatory. Right. I don't. I think that was the only nurse anesthesia program, but don't hold me to that. Mm-hmm. That had the option for a clinical doctorate. That was pretty bold. Yeah. At was. that time. Well, I can just imagine, you know, the boldness it took to go from a certificate to a degree ah. to a master's. And, and now, you know, I, I didn't live through any of that, but I was around during the doctorate, you know, mandate and saw all the pushback. And, you know, of course, the other CRNAs who'd been more experienced, been around a while. Well, what do you need that for? Mm-hmm. And so it, it was interesting to kind of watch all this unfold. And now, obviously, with the doctorate prepared, CRNA is coming out, you know, it, it does breed a little bit of animosity amongst other folks. Mm, well, you bring up a very good point, but I don't think I had really thought about it in that regard, going all the way from a certificate to a doctorate. And basically, that's happened while I've been in the, yeah. well, I had to get, they went to a master's level right before I started anesthesia school because okay. I was ready to apply and I didn't have my bachelor's degree. I was an ADN grad, so I had to go back to get my BSN in order to get into school. And that happened right before I went in. Yeah. So, so wow. pretty much all during your career. I mean, this mm-hmm. progression has happened kind of rapidly. And, and Nancy, I mean, you were an educator. You know, it makes me wonder, you know, as we go through this, why? Why has all this taken place in this kind of short time span? What kind of made this be pushed to the forefront? Any ideas on that? Your thoughts? Well, I think that with third-party reimbursement and then moving forward to trying to remove supervision from uh, Part A Medicare and trying to revise the seven conditions of payment, you know, we were becoming more and more visible in Washington, D.C. Very good point. And I think my opinion is that we felt that we would be better recognized yeah. if we had educational credentials behind us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was a certificate graduate, and then when I went into education, because I did not have a bachelor's degree, I had to do three educational courses. And then, of course, to keep my job, I had to get a bachelor's degree. And then to keep my job, I had to get a master's degree. <laughs> mm-hmm. So... um course when we moved our programs to the master's degree one of the reasons for doing that was feeling that it would give us stronger recognition credibility and credibility when we spoke before the committees in washington and when we lobbied in washington gotcha i think that's that's a very good point point. yeah you know i don't think i've ever heard anybody really talk no but it's a good question so you talked about the new program director's orientation workshop. Mm-hmm. Tell us some more about that. And does it still continue today? I don't know. Don't know. Mm-hmm. I really don't. Well, go back again and remember that I'm sure Sandy talked about the Education Commission when she did her 
you know, her leadership thing for a past president. But with that education committee, we increased our program so much because that was one of the goals because mm-hmm. we had lost so many right. programs. And so there were a lot of new, brand new program directors in new schools. So it wasn't like where you became the program director of an existing school and maybe you graduated from that school Mm -hmm. so that you had some idea about what you were supposed to do because you had mentors who moved you into an educational area to succeed someone who ultimately was going to retire. So now you have these new programs and you have these young people coming in to be their program directors and they don't really have that type have not had that type of mentorship Mm -hmm. and so that was one of the reasons for starting the new Mm -hmm. well you started a new program i know but i was an old person (laughs) <laughs> what do you mean you're still not old well, what are you I, talking about well i mean i have been an assistant program administrator for 10 years well, before i went there is what i mean but you know some were not some walked into being a program director yeah. and so it was just felt by both the um coa and certification and recertification that they should come together and put together a workshop because they'd never done a self some of them had never participated in a self-study or an accreditation visit. Well, you also mentioned the dedication of the Women in Military Service for America Memorial in Arlington, and you said AANA was early adopter. Why don't you just talk for a moment about that and why that was an important time for AANA? Well, I think it was an extension of beginning to recognize women in service. The first um, recognition that I participated in was during uh, Lynn Callahan's year when they dedicated the uh, Vietnam Memorial, which is mm-hmm. where the wall is. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was an extension of continuing to recognize the importance of women in the military. Because up until that time, if you think all of the statues and everything are all of men. That's true. And, that um, is true. And we just felt that as an association, we needed to support both those ventures, which we did, because we had so many military CRNAs, and a lot of those military CRNAs were women. Hmm. Nancy, if you can remember, and I know today, you know, men, women in in nurse anesthesia, it's about even. I mean, you know, it's Mm -hmm. 51, 49 or something, but... Back in, in, in those days, I mean, do you know percentage-wise? It seems to me like it would have been a lot more women than men back then. We were pretty, in the mid, mid-90s and late-90s, we were moving pretty close to having 50-50. Were you? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, back in um, the 70s and the 60s, you did not have that many men nurses. I remember the first male nurse who came to the nursing program that was at Baptist Hospital years ago. Who was that? I don't remember. Uh, well, I remember name. Martin Comer was no. one. Well, I mean, his first name was Ron, but I don't huh. remember his last name. Okay, and he was after me. I mean, he came after me. Oh, I thought so he had... was chasing you. Know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm no. glad we so, clarified that. I mean, he came. If, if I remember correctly, he was a freshman when I was a 
So what year student. did you graduate? Do I have to tell okay. you that? Never mind. That was a bad That's question. That's an off-limits question, Sharon. <laughs> I was just trying to run a stake in the ground when we had well, the Well, let's first. just say it was in the 60s. Okay. There the you go. The late 60s. All right. Okay. There you go. All right. <laughs> All right. I should know better. Um, oh, my gosh. The first CRNA pack boat cruise yep. was held. I love that boat cruise. Yep. It was held during my year. How and, fun. And it was fun. And we had a lot of people and we made a lot of money. Uh, I think I was on that cruise. You may actually. have been. In the late 60s? No, no oh, 90s. Sorry, this been, <laughs> no, this would have been in, let's see, that we still had, no, we had moved to the uh, combining the GRC with what was the spring assembly. Right. We did that the year before. Mm-hmm. So it was in the spring. Yeah. of 1997 i was on that i guarantee you i was on that cruise it was so fun hmm. so so another big point you talked about was hicfa and the deferral to states on supervision of crna medicare cases and obviously a and a probably made this a top priority during that time period uh yes definitely <laughs> i think that was a big deal <laughs> it was and um on my board i had I had more than one educator, as well as, you know, practitioners. And there really were two issues that were very important during the time that I was on the board. And, of course, I had one that was more important to me, and others had one that was more important to them. And the two were removal of supervision from Part A Medicare, and the second one was revising the seven conditions of physician payment. TEFRA. Uh, TEFRA, Yeah. And that would have been a hard, that's a hard thing to do because it is very difficult to go in and make a case with Congress for why you want to change the way somebody else is paid. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Because it had nothing to do with how we were paid, but it definitely impacted practice. Mm-hmm. And it, in my opinion, it impacted educating students. Because, see, when I was in anesthesia school, we didn't have any seven conditions of of TEFRA. And so the CRNA and me as a student would go in the room. We would talk to the anesthesiologist because we I was at Baptist. And, of course, there were not many anesthesiologists in North Carolina when I was a student. And we would talk to the anesthesiologist and tell them what our plan was. And, of course, if it was a hard or neuro, it was a little bit different. But for most cases, it was, okay, go do it and you know, I'm here. Let me know if you need anything. So I pushed my own drugs. I did all the stuff, started my own IVs, blah, blah, blah. And so the rules were in not so much at that time at where I was, but in other places. What was happening was the physicians were pushing the drugs, you know, and they were in there. They were there for induction. They were in and out all the time and i felt like it people they weren't i don't want to say that they weren't as well prepared but they didn't have the experience of doing it all by themselves Mm -hmm. the way that i had done it because i went to two places prior to coming back to winston-salem where there were no anesthesiologists and i was very comfortable with that Mm -hmm. so that was very important to me Mm -hmm. to narrow or to expand that so that the anesthesiologist didn't have to 
be there for every induction and every emergence, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, the others, the other thing that was going on at that time was, and I think I've said this in other podcasts that I've done for you guys, there was a real glut of residents coming out, Mm -hmm. and they were, particularly in OB, telling the obstetricians that their um, liability was being increased by CRNAs, which was not true. But they were taking those jobs, and then when they in small places, and then when they got the opportunity to move to a big place, the hospital was left without anesthesia services. So supervision, and then the other thing too was in doing this, they were using the Part A supervision to make these physicians feel that their liability was being increased, which really was not true, and so making them feel or see that they needed an anesthesiologist there to take that liability away. And of course, if you think about where to go first with liability, it's OB, because, Mm -hmm. you know, they're the ones that are most worried about, you know, an adverse event. And so this this continues today. (laughs) I know, I know. But so supervision was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And so I had a retreat in Fort Lauderdale, And I did it a little bit different. I did not want any outside influence at all. I wanted my board to go in there. I wanted them to look at these issues. Of course, uh, supporting nurse anesthesia traineeship money was not an issue. And we brought in a person who had worked for many years at CMS. And we really hashed it out. And I think I've said this before. I had a strong board. Mm -hmm. From my board, there were six other presidents that came out of those people. Wow. That's a strong board. And I felt like whatever decision we made would continue, and we would really be able to put a strong effort behind it, because we weren't going to solve this problem in a year. Well, wasn't this the beginning of what became the opt-out? Yes. Okay. Uh So back again to... The foundation was laid, mm-hmm. right. and then it just kept on going forward. Because mm-hmm. yeah. there's very little, there are very few, very very important issues that get solved in one year. Mm-hmm. And so we knew this was going to be for the long haul. This is a continuing trend uh-huh. in this Courage to Lead series that the yeah. presidents are talking and so, about. Since my board was so strong, and I knew that. There was that I just knew these people were going to run for president. I just do. I mean, it was people like Jan Stewart, Linda Williams, Rodney Lester, Debbie Geisler, Larry Hornsby, you know, and Scott Foster was my president elect. I just felt like if we could come to terms Mm -hmm. on what was really important, we wouldn't be changing our legislative agenda all the time and we could move forward and make some change in these important issues well it's like simon sinek says you found your why Mm -hmm. and so 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 the next year i was the last grc chair federal grc chair because they dissolved the grc committee after that year but that was the beginning of revision of the seven conditions Mm -hmm. so well, that explains why, talking about the OB, that explains your public relations campaign okay. that you had to launch right. to yeah. educate mm-hmm. the public and everyone about yes. the role of CRNAs. That's true. Yeah. 
And it sounds like you had a really cohesive board and a very, very strong board. We were. We were very cohesive. And I had learned from Christine. Christine was president before me, and she introduced a new way to do the board meetings, and that was that for all of the um, agenda items that were going to need a vote, she assigned each one to a different person who brought a motion that was already seconded, and that's how we introduced it and then went to discussion. Mm -hmm. So it was a very organized way to do a board meeting. And then when I became president, I continued that, but instead of having people raising their hands and all this kind of stuff, I just started with, okay, Larry, do you want to speak to this motion? I just went around my board. Mm -hmm. Everybody had a chance to speak. If they didn't have anything to say, fine, they passed. Mm -hmm. But you didn't have a lot of mumbling and people button in trying to say things they all knew they were going to get their chance to say what they wanted to say and so i felt like that really helped us come together with what we really was important well with all those strong people on the board i could see how that could get a little oh, yeah. bit out of control with strong personalities everybody plus i had our about. gun on my board oh my goodness oh wow and you know how strong she was. Oh, my wow. goodness. Yes. Wow. So you learned how to uh, really run an efficient board meeting. So what are some of the other lessons that you learned while you were a leader of the AANA? Well, as I said, I feel that there, there's always an undercurrent before there is an issue, a big issue anyway. And... um this thing about supervision in Part A was not new. Warning revision to the seven conditions was not new. And so one of the things that I learned was or was needed by me was to go back and ask people, the history, give me the history of this. I want to know how it started. How did Part A uh, Medicare get the supervision in it anyway? That's um, a very good question. You know, I pretty much knew a lot about the seven conditions, but, you know, there were just things that I needed to know. And one of the reasons I wanted to know it was because at that time, you know, we had a lot of forums. We still do. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to look stupid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> stupid <laughs> leading those forums. You know, yeah. I wanted to have some yes. answers. Or if I didn't, I wanted to know who did. Right. Very, uh, I mean, this is a common I, I thing. I can completely uh -huh. relate to this because, you know, I, I'm outside of the anesthesia world, so I have to educate myself you on do. these podcasts to get up to where I don't sound stupid. You know, oh, so you I, could I never sound stupid, that, but, Jeremy. You know. <laughs> but, I mean, you bring up a good point. You were looking to past leaders. We have, uh, whenever I was president, we had past president conference calls and that way of course most presidents have you know mentors mm -hmm. that they look to and call you know i could call you whenever i was president if i had any questions linda williams was one of my mentors and i could look to her so what i'm hearing is you just you went back to past leaders mm -hmm. to get the full story because let me tell you Everything that happens is not reflected in a meeting minute. <laughs> no, it's not. And, you know, I did the same thing when I was on the, the Council on Accreditation. 
because a whole lot of stuff had happened, the challenge from the ASA on our ability to accredit ourselves. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so I was kind of used to going back to them and asking, you know. And luckily, I didn't always have to – I didn't have to agree with them for the most part. I mean, you know, if I didn't agree – they didn't turn their backs on me. I mean, they always allowed me to have my own opinions. But I felt like my opinions was stronger or more valid because I had more information. Yeah. Well, you know, Nancy, we've obviously got a different generation of younger CRNAs coming out now. And you've been an educator and you can definitely relate to that. And I'm sure throughout your time, you you told those students things they needed to know based upon where you've been and what you've done for this organization. What would you tell our listeners who are getting ready to graduate or possibly within the first five years of their career that they should know about this profession? Well, I think I would probably tell them the same thing that I've, I've said many, many, many times. I think right now, though, because... And I don't want to step on anyone's feet, but I think that our students are less involved in being an organization. They're, um, and I'm not saying that technology is wrong. I love technology. Um, you know, I use it every day, just mm-hmm. like everyone else does. But I do think that they need to really continue to be a part of the organization. And I think they should strive really, really hard to understand where we've been, the battles we fought, and where we need to go. And I wish that there's some way I could truly impress upon them the gratification as well as the worries that come with being a part of an organization and being an active part of that organization. I can't even begin to tell you how valuable what I learned from being on the Council on Accred, being on committees, being um, on boards of directors. It hadn't just been for the association. It taught me so much for what I did with my as far as my career is concerned and I met so many people like Charlton Heston has touched me right here oh my goodness <laughs> and uh, you know Moses <laughs> yeah Moses uh, you're I gonna mean, live forever Nancy Moses has touched you <laughs> so I mean I, I, I mean there's just so much outside of your little computer screen or your iPad or your iPhone and let me tell you I'm not I'm not being critical I'm not really being critical because I've got my iPhone and my iPad right with me today I've been working with two computers all week instead of just (laughs) one so I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. that so I'm hearing you say, um, but get it's out not some. A, it's not about Facebook posts. No, uh-uh. it's about being involved. Being it, involved. It's just get and out engaged. and engage with, really engage with them, not just through technology, sure. but really get to know the people mm-hmm. that you're associated with and get to know your profession and support it with all you've got because quite frankly you've got one of the best you're going to have one of the best careers 
most rewarding careers in more ways than just how much money you're going to make. So I hear you saying you love your profession. 88% of nurse anesthetists would choose the same profession again, but what else would you have been if you couldn't have been a CRNA? If I couldn't have been a CRNA, I would have been a veterinarian. Uh, There's no surprise there for me. I hear you've rubbed an elephant's tongue. Oh, yeah. I bet there's not anybody else at this table who could say that. I can't say I've ever done that, no. (laughs) Yeah. That was an experience. Uh, Is it bumpy? Uh Uh-uh. It's It's hot. It's hot. (laughs) Yeah, their tongues are hot because that helps them digest the wood. Now, I don't know that all people know that an elephant eats every bit of a tree. Huh. Not just not the leaves, not just the branches. <laughs> just because they can. Huh. And that's why they have the tusks, because they use them to dig up the roots. Oh. And so the hot tongue helps them to actually digest the wood. Interesting. And this was a very nice bull elephant. He was so sweet. And you would have loved him, Sharon, because he knew when his picture was going to be taken. And he would, he would throw his trunk up and pose, and he loved women. He would wrap that trunk around them. So in other words, we've got a selfie elephant. <laughs> so Relating you, it back you to would have loved him. Oh, that's great. I think that's a, a wonderful way to end this. And uh, tells a lot about your personality, Nancy. It really does. And the caring nature that you have about you. And and she really does. For those yes. of you that don't know Nancy, that is that is definitely her personality. And she is begging to take Peanut. She sends me texts <laughs> yeah. all the time. Let me have Peanut. I'm like, Pierce would let her. Pierce, Pierce would die for Oh, my God. Her. Pierce would let, let her have me, but, yeah, not, but, the not, but not the dog. Yeah, well. Sharon, I I think that's a wrap. We want to thank you, Nancy, for being here. Thank Thank you for your leadership and all that you've done for this organization. And what did Sandy always say? You you stand on the shoulders of giants. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have a giant in the room, and she's not an elephant, but uh, but she is a giant. So we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mask with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our other episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure and leave us a review and hit that subscribe button. If you've got a negative review, please don't listen. Okay? (laughs) Thank you. Please don't leave us anything either. It's a wrap. Hi, everybody. This is Jeremy. Remember back in episode 45 when my co-hosts Sharon Pierce and Kimberly Gordon talked about the candidate school for nurses that they're piloting at Yale for May of 2020. The application process opened on January 1st. If you're a nurse or a nurse anesthetist and interested in running for elected office, or even if you're interested in managing another nurse's campaign, you will not want to miss this opportunity. As the first candidate school for nurses in the country, you will want to be in the inaugural class. Just go to the Yale Nursing website and search Candidate School for Nurses and apply today. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode 
to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA history series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA personal finance series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest, or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny.